Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of the American Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Joseph Abrams, and we have a lot for you this week. It was kind of a shorter week, so to speak, uh, for myself, but also in the news, there didn't seem to be a whole lot uh, that was terribly intriguing or pressing. So we kind of get to look back when we weren't doing podcasts and cover some hot topics as well as look forward to an election year. So we're going to really be diving into the current Democratic platform and, and looking at all the different nooks and crannies of items that are involved uh, and really what they want to do should they take back take back the House of Representatives and the Senate and, and potentially even the White House in 2020. We're going to dive into their current platform and really just explore the, the two sides that are competing uh, in what some people would call open rebellion. So that's on the topic for tonight. Just a couple of quick reminders. We have seen some amazing growth. We've seen some amazing donations. People have bought T-shirts, uh, bumper stickers. They've just donated a dollar show, which goes so far. Uh, I mean, you guys really don't know. So thank you for all the support. Please remember to go to theamericantalk.com, all one word, theamericantalk.com. Dot com. Uh, please feel free to donate a dollar uh, a show. It goes a really long way. If you donate $10, go ahead and just purchase one of those uh, bumper stickers. And if you want to and, and you feel led, go ahead and donate $25 to get the American Talk Podcast t-shirt. Uh, we are a growing brand and it's really been fun to watch as well as to help uh, take that take that funding and really pump it towards a narrative that I think America is desperately needing. So enough of those selfish plugs. Please remember to go rate, subscribe, uh, all that good stuff. And, and thank you for listening. Let's get right into it. You know, it's not often that I end right there at the uh, very end of the opening. So that's unique. That doesn't actually happen very often. Well, what is happening in politics today in the United States? Now, for some of you, you might think that's kind of a redundant question because politics is fluid. It's something that's changing. It changes based off of the will of the people. In fact, politics back in you know 1200 AD looked vastly different than politics today, as it should. Uh, uh, the, the United States in particular was developed. Uh, a lot of great ideas were behind it, things like uh, the Magna Carta, John Locke, the Constitution, Declaration of Independence. Uh, it, humanity has grown, and so politics seemed to grow. Now, there are certainly some, some ties that you can trace back even to that of our Greek philosophers, and history plays a critical role. But in the United States specifically, it seems politics might not be growing. It could very well be regressing. It could be polarizing is maybe the best term. And we're seeing that. We're seeing that polarization. I think we saw it probably first back in 2012 when the Tea Party was, was being very mainstream. 2010, 2012, the Tea Party really erupted. And it was one of the first times that the Republican base fractured, that you no longer had a mainstream Republican cohesive group that you had from 2000 all the way up in 2008. The mainstream base under George W. Bush was strong. It was present. A Republican could be on different lines or facets, but they all seemed to be a coalition who all voted the same way. And then the Tea Party came and said, no, we will not be the mainstream 
Republicans. In fact, we're going to have some founding ideas that will make us different from Republicans. And one of them was we're going to focus on deficit reduction. We're going to focus on debt reduction and lowering tax rates. Now, the irony there is that that is and has been a Republican staple. And it was maybe just something the Republicans had lost when they had gained power for eight years under President George W. Bush. And I would argue that they did. Uh, I mean, tax reduction was there, but our spending was out of control. A Reaganistic mindset of conservative and limited government uh, was renewed in the Tea Party. And, and, And those are critical aspects. But from a history standpoint, it really is a unique time when in a party there's almost open rebellion. And then 2016 seemed to affirm that rebellion had not only grown, but perhaps overthrown the mainstream power. I don't want to sound too dramatized there, but President Trump was not a mainstream Republican candidate. We had those on the ticket. We had uh, our, our, our John Kasichs. We had our Jeb Bush, who is probably the, the standard bearer for a mainstream Republican candidate, a governor, popular governor from a swing state, uh, who ran in the Bush dynasty uh, to face off against another dynasty of Hillary Clinton. Surely Jeb Bush uh, was a mainstream candidate. And then you even had some more right-wing candidates, but still people could argue were mainstream. Uh, Senator Marco Rubio is another great example of someone who maybe was a little bit more conservative or Tea Party th- sympathist, uh, but at the same time, he was, all in all, still a mainstream Republican. President Trump surely stood out from those guys, not just with his rhetoric, but also with his protectionist view. I mean, remember, he, he believed in tariffs. He thought trade wars were a good thing. That is not a Republican or a conservative staple. In fact, historically, those were Democratic ideals. Uh, especially protectionism. Uh, the, the conservative base believes firmly in Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, believes firmly in Milton Freeman. Uh, it, it believes that free trade is the best trade. And so a protectionist view is actually contrary to that of the Republican base. And yet here we are with President Donald Trump, who has an R next to his name, representing the Republican Party. He holds vastly different views than that of Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan, his two mainstream Republicans housed in the House of Representatives and the leader of the Senate. And for a long time, the narrative was what is happening to the Republican Party. They are fleeing to the right in some regards because you had some other significant players, uh, perhaps none greater than that of Senator Rand Paul who was a, a right-wing, so to speak. Yes, he is a quote-unquote libertarian, but he still goes with the Republican Party. But he's very right-wing with his rhetoric as far as reduce government to, to the end of maybe no government, no government regulation in some areas, uh, and really has a, a good belief system. I, I think it's one he holds to earnestly, but is one that is probably far more right than that of a Senator McCain or a Senator Flake. Uh, those would be more considered middle-of-the-road Republicans 
who can come to the table and very easily compromise with the Democratic Party because they don't truthfully hold to that of all the conservative ideals. And, and that's not to bash on them. I think a middle-of-the-road approach oftentimes is one of the best approaches, as long as you're not compromising on, on certain things like life, liberty, or the pursuit of happiness. So what, is, what does that mean for the Republican Party? And, it, and it's one I think we're still kind of diving into. Are, are we following the, the Trumpian <laughs> political view? Is Trump going to draft his own foreign policy? Uh, what, what, where are we going as the Republican Party? And we're seeing that in midterm elections. Oh, this candidate is a firm supporter in President Trump. In fact, in Arizona, we have two candidates running for the Republican seat, uh, Dr. Kelly Ward and Martha McSally. And something that's interesting is the Kelly Ward campaign has spent a lot of money uh, campaigning and, and using rhetoric that Martha McSally doesn't support President Trump. And in fact, it's hurt her so much so that Martha McSally recently had to retaliate to that and start running campaigns that she does support President Trump and that President Trump supports her. So you have this, in Arizona at least, a return to, no, 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 I am the president's candidate. But in other areas of the United States, we're not seeing that. In Ohio, you're seeing uh, a Trump candidate barely beat out a non-Trump candidate. Uh, you, you just see this debate of, am, am I in the mainstream Republican center, like a, a John Kasich, or am I a Trumpian? And then you even have still the outliers who are the Senator Rand Paul and the Tea Partyists, the, the Ted Cruz sympathizers, who kind of don't fit into either. So you, you, you have a, like three warring factions in the Republican Party, and it creates heartache. It, 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 gets, it, it creates a roadblock for legislation to be passed because the right wants it to be so far right that it attracts libertarians and Tea Partyists. So it's super conservative, low regulation, uh, you know, good tax breaks all around, but that doesn't have the compromising effect to get Democrats on board. And so that's where the Republican Party's at. But it's been one that's being developed since 2010, 2012. I mean, we're eight, ten years in into this now, and, and, and we're starting to see that we'll probably be in the situations clear through President Trump's presidency and perhaps onto, you know, 2020. 2024 elections where the Republican Party has a split base. They have split factions. But they're in no means the only party to have that happening, which is ironic because we only have a two-party system. So by that, I mean something that maybe hasn't been in the press that needs to be explored is that the Democrats themselves are starting to go through this same issue. And I would argue they're probably following the same path Republicans followed after the defeat of Senator McCain when he was running against then-Senator Barack Obama in 2008 for the White House. That once the establishment candidate was defeated, the party itself looked inward for correction. Hillary Clinton is the standard-bearer for an establishment Democratic candidate. People thought President Obama would be far more left than he was, but he ended up returning to the middle and being a very established Democrat. He worked 
well with the establishment and the Democratic Party, and he helped cement the establishment when he was president, which is why he endorsed Hillary Clinton for president. I know he stayed out of the primary mostly, but I don't think anyone was surprised that he wanted Hillary Clinton to be the Democratic nominee, and he wanted her to be the president of the United States. He is a part of the establishment. So when I say the Democratic establishment, I really want you to think of Senator Clinton or Secretary of State Clinton. I want you to think of President Obama. I want you to think of President Bill Clinton and kind of those types of circles. The people who I don't want you thinking of are people like Senator Elizabeth Warren or Senator Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders perfectly represents the anti-democratic establishment. In fact, he's, he's polling the Democratic middle left, which is how you know he is not a part of the establishment. Just like the Tea Party and Ted Cruz and, and Rand Paul polled the Republicans right, so Bernie Sanders is polling the Democrats left. And I'm not going to get into whether that's right or wrong, but it, it has to be acknowledged as a fact that the Democratic middle is fracturing fairly quickly. And probably nothing illustrates this better than Representative Joe Crawley losing his primary to a 28-year-old bartender named Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And so we're going to spend a lot of time diving into who she is and what she stands for. But we also want to look back and look at Representative Joe Crawley and think... Okay, why why the shift? Well, Joe Crawley is in the Nancy Pelosi mainstream Democrat. And I think Nancy Pelosi herself has started to move left because she saw some of her friends falling by the wayside. But a lot of people put Joe Crawley as one of the top three Democrats in Capitol Hill. He's extraordinarily powerful. He's definitely one of the behind-the-scenes guy, but one of the guys who a lot of people thought might be like the majority whip if they would take back the House in the midterm elections. And he just lost his primary to a 28-year-old Democratic Socialist who definitely supports Bernie Sanders and does not, at least to my knowledge, currently represent the mainstream Democrat. It's an interesting shift. And in fact, no Republican yet has been that high-ranking and lost their primary to a Tea Party or Trump candidate. So, almost in one sense, this is a symptom that's maybe showing that the rebellion that is happening in the Democratic Party might be far more fierce than the one happening in the Republican Party. And that could be for a couple of reasons. One is, the Republican Party has a leadership that is established. It, it is that of President Trump, and the mainstream Republicans are trying to probably fit their view and, and find a way to work with the Trumpian view. The Democrats, though, don't have a leadership, so they're kind of in a regrouping, figuring out what they want to be for the, the campaign and election, and I think they chose wrong. I think Alexandria Cortez is probably the wrong choice, and I could be wrong here, But let's dive right into it. So who is she and what does she support? Well, it's it's kind of funny because she really is a socialist. 
and they put democratic socialists to make it sound better, I assume. But let me list probably her four biggest staples or, or, or what she would like to do. Number one is Medicare for all, which is a growing theme in the Democratic Party. Medicare for all. Obamacare wasn't good enough. They want Medicare for everybody. You know that you know that health insurance run by the government where people oftentimes have to get supplement insurance? Yeah, they want to grow that. They want to expand that item that could very well be killing the healthcare industry in the United States. Another podcast for another time, but they want that to apply to everybody. That's basically like looking at the DMV and thinking they should also sell cars. I don't get it. I probably never will, but that but that is their staple. That's their number one thing. The second thing is she definitely supports the removal of capitalism. And I know people are going to kind of gawk at that and say you might be misrepresenting her views, but in an interview she said capitalism hasn't always been here. Our country wasn't founded with it. And it won't always be here. Strong words for someone who, you know, if she does support capitalism. Clearly, clearly she doesn't or she wouldn't really be excited. And so then we have to make the jump to, well, do you think she supports the removal of capitalism? And I think her other views overwhelmingly say yes. She thinks capitalism causes almost an indenturement for the average worker. So she doesn't really seem to like capitalism and definitely has indicated that she'd like to see it removed. And if, I mean, to say that it won't always be here in the future is kind of hinting at like, I'd be excited if it wasn't here. Like we need to figure out the progressive look because capitalism is bad. And it's a funny thing that they keep saying capitalism is bad when nothing in the history of humanity has pulled more people out of poverty than capitalism. In fact, here is a quote from my Democrats who support the removal of capitalism. Capitalism is the greatest weapon we have in the war on poverty. That was said by President Barack Obama. Not President Reagan, not George W. Bush, not Milton Freeman, President Barack Obama said, the greatest weapon we have in the war on poverty is capitalism. Nothing has elevated mankind into wealth than that of capitalism. Poverty is at one of its lowest rates in the history of humanity around the world because of ideas like free trade and capitalism. And I know I'm getting down a rabbit hole that could surely be another podcast, but I think that the economics behind why capitalism works far outweighs any economic theory of why it should be removed. And so far, at least in history, every time we've tried to remove capitalism, it has led to the death and destruction of mankind on scales we can't fathom. The Soviet Union surely tried, and I know they didn't achieve pure socialism or pure communism, communism, and we can get into whether that can be achieved or not, but surely they tried to remove and did remove capitalism from their society. Stalin had to kill 50 million, roughly, if you use lowball estimates on his establishment of communism. 
Mao did that in China, where they still don't have pure capitalism, I'd have everyone note, but he had to kill 60 to potentially 100 million. I mean, the numbers there are very greatly, and they just called that the reunification of China. I, I guess if you just kill half the people who who don't believe what you believe, you can just label that reunification. Bravo on the uh, paparazzi or the propaganda campaign there. Uh, Venezuela is trying it right now, and and they're kind of in the dumps. And so, really, we we have kind of loose sections of Europe. I guess we can look to and say maybe they support socialism. But Switzerland really doesn't. I mean, Switzerland has a great median income. They're a very well-established country. I'd have it note that they are almost irrelevant as far as it comes to military size and defense spending. I mean, if you care about such things. But they seemingly don't really adopt capital, or they don't adopt socialism. And in fact, Germany is a strong component or and proponent of capitalism. Even France has strong capitalistic ties. So it's, it's, it's hard for me to get behind this idea that we can remove it, and by doing so, humanity would be better. And, and in fact, I, I would really argue and encourage my listeners to look through history and find me an example, and perhaps I'm just missing one. Uh, even China today has a one-child policy. I, I, I doubt that's what the United States would want to encourage by removing that of capitalism. So She's a strong proponent, or at least an anti-capitalist, and probably would like to remove capitalism. And then she also wants to abolish ICE, which we're going to hit on later in this podcast. But she wants to abolish the Immigration Customs Enforcement Agency. And we're going to hit on why it's a really bad idea, but I would just like that to be established. Finally, we have a, a Democrat who wants to eliminate a government agency. If nothing else, I'm just very excited by that notion at all. Maybe we'll get more Democrats who want to eliminate the EPA. A guy can dream. Uh, um, but, uh, you know, to me, it's great. I mean, hey, you want to eliminate a government agency. It's probably one of the first times in the history of the Democratic Party that they've said government can screw up and and will, while at the same breath saying, but we should trust them with all of our health care. Um, you know, there's a little bit of irony there, but I would, I would love to get into that. Uh, you know, I'd love to trust and talk with her about why government power can be abused when it comes to immigration and custom reform, but it can't be abused in health care reform. Um, so, you know, Different topic, but she wants to abolish ICE. Let's cover that a little bit later down the line. And then she also appears to be anti-Israel with a couple of statements in this uh, upcoming clip. And I want you to listen closely to what she says. And and, and this has been floating around as kind of a, a, a gaffe or her screwing up. And you'll definitely see why. But at the same time, I really want you to listen to the word she uses to describe Palestine and Israel and their current conflict. So this is clip one. Let's go ahead and roll it. What people are starting to see, at least in in the occupation uh, of of Palestine, is um, just an increasing crisis of humanitarian condition. Do you think you can expand on that? Yeah, I mean, I think I'd also just, I, I am not the expert on geopolitics on this issue. You know, for me, I'm a firm believer in uh, in finding a, a two-state solution in this issue. So you you may have missed it, but she used a phrase that is inflammatory, and the phrase was the occupation of Palestine. Now, why is that phrase inflammatory? 
mainly because it's the rallying cry of several groups. And I want you to hear these groups and think, do I want to be associated with these groups? So here they are. It it was a rallying cry for the Taliban, for Al-Qaeda, and the recruitment pre-9-11 and post-9-11. And it is a current rallying cry for groups like ISIS and Hamas. For those of you who live under a rock, those are all terrorist organizations that have carried out horrible atrocities against not just the United States, but people around the world. They are awful, terrible people who hate the United States, who hate our way of life, and they hate Israel. And they believe simply by the presence of of Israel's existence, that it is an occupation of Palestine. And it's a hard thing to explain because it's a completely mad proposition, but essentially it boils down to this. Do you believe Israel has a right to exist? If they do, then Israel is not an occupation of Palestine for multiple reasons. One is they've actually surrendered land to the Palestinians in order to get peace, okay? So, that's one aspect. They've surrendered land, they've offered peace negotiations multiple times, but they've usually fallen through on the, on the, on the idea that Israel doesn't even have a right to exist. In fact, Hamas has, multiple, has said multiple times they will not negotiate with Israel because they're not going to negotiate with someone they don't believe exists, essentially. So the best way to kind of relate this to the United States view would be if Mexico referred to Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas as the occupation of the United States. You'd be like, what? What do you even mean? How does that even make sense? The United States rightfully owns them. We're not an occupation of them. They're three of our states. It's similar in the regard of Israel. If you say Israel is an occupation, you're not really acknowledging the fact that Israel has a right to their land. They have a right to defend themselves. And you can now kind of grasp why people were a little shocked that she used that phrase. Mainly because it's been one of the first times in U.S. history we've had a political group that doesn't believe that Israel has a right to exist. And I'm not necessarily saying she believes that because clearly she tried to backpedal those words when she said, well, I believe in a two-state solution. She ended that, right? She threw it in there. She definitely tried to cover her tracks because you can't, though, if you believe that one group is occupying the other group. So how much land or how much would Israel have to give up in order to not be occupying Palestine? Well, according to the Palestinians, according to Hamas, the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, they'd have to surrender all of them. Israel would not be allowed to exist. That's the whole point we're getting at. You you can't call them an occupation if they have a right to exist. That's the the whole goal. And I was glad to see her try to backpedal about her two-state solution, but she also still used that phrase, occupation. Where'd she get that? Well, she's actually a member of the Democratic Socialists of America who believe Israel is illegally occupying Palestine by their pure existence. Do you you see what I'm saying? So she might say she believes in a two-state solution, but she's a part of a group that echoes that of Hamas sympathizers. That's bad. And in fact, on her Twitter feed, 
she decided to condemn Israel for committing airstrikes against the Palestinians and killing 60 Palestinians after a massive wave of rockets rocked the Gaza Strip. She condemned those and just said it was an atrocity, human's right violation. Look at her, the 28-year-old who clearly doesn't understand geopolitical uh, conflict, even though it's it's important to note, even though she does have an international relations degree. That was her degree, was international relations. So the fact that she's not an expert on probably the great, greatest international relations uh, case study that we've ever had in the history of the world, one that has biblical proportions... And this goes back to pre-Roman days, right? This is something that has been happening for eons. And she doesn't understand, or at least she's not an expert, even though she literally has a degree in it. Uh, You know, important to note, except Israel was acting in response to airstrikes committed by the terror group Hamas, and they killed 60 Palestinians, and on Hamas's social groups, they admitted that at least 51 of those were terrorists. They're Hamas organizers. It's also important to note they actually said 51 to 61, so definitely within the full group of the dead were probably all terrorists, and she was defending them. Odd move for a politician, and one that makes it really hard to have meaningful compromise in legislation. I mean, and this is how far left she is. I would say President Obama did a terrible job with affirming Israel's right to exist, but he never once publicly questioned their right to existence. He didn't condemn them for certain things, and admittedly, there have been times where I've looked at Israel and asked that they take a different approach or, you know, open their hearts and not their missiles to some degree at some times. But I'm also quick to remember that if Quebec started shooting off missiles into New York, I, I don't know how long it would take for, before the United States Marine Corps would basically, you know, occupy Quebec, right? Or occupy Canada or, or physically forcibly remove Justin Trudeau from office if he was shooting rockets into the United States. No country on earth other than Israel not only has to deal with that, but seems to tolerate it. I mean, name me one. How many rockets would uh, someone have to shoot at the UK before they would start invading France? I mean, it it blows my mind, neither here nor there. But if that's the rhetoric you're getting from the left, who say we want to remove capitalism, well, that's so far left for even mainstream Democrats. I mean, remember, President Obama was a supporter of capitalism to a degree. Surely didn't want to remove it from uh, the mainstream America. I, I know a lot of my right commentators, the Rush Limbaugh, Laura Ingram, would you know say contrary, but he, he never did. In fact, he was a proponent of it as far as a weapon against poverty. He was very adamant about that. He also supported the right to existence of the state of Israel, a key foreign policy decision for anyone who wants to be an elected politician. And yet... There's one more piece that I said we would come back to, and that is the abolishment of ICE. Now, what is ICE? Well, I actually don't want to explain it to you. I want to let Speaker Paul Ryan explain it to you because I think he puts it in a very eloquent way. So remember, Speaker Paul Ryan has been in the middle for Republicans for a long time. He's not far right to be a part of a Tea Party. He's definitely not in the Trumpian era. 
and yet he still manages to bring people together to pass some legislation reform. I think uh, I'm not really going to get into defending him. I think he's been put in an impossible situation multiple times. He's made the best of it to a degree, and, he, and he's fumbled the ball a couple times. But on this, I think he's 100% correct. So remember, this is a middle-of-the-road guy trying to wrap his brain around the Abolish ICE movement that is really being spearheaded by this new rising Democratic star, but is also being supported by Senator Elizabeth Warren and Senator Bernie Sanders, two definite presidential candidates. So just listen to this rhetoric. This is clip two. Let's go ahead and roll it. Uh, they have really jumped the sharks on the left. Uh, they have really, I'm a, it's an amazing, it's, it's, I think it's Pocan's bill from Madison. Uh, you want to abolish the immigration and uh, Customs and Enforcement Agency. This is the agency that that gets gangs out of our communities, that helps prevent drugs from flowing into our schools, that, that rescues people from human trafficking. They want to get rid of this agency. It's the craziest position I've ever seen. And they are just, they just can't, they're tripping over themselves to move too far to the left. They're out of the mainstream of America. And that's one of the reasons why I feel very good about this fall. They are tripping over themselves to move to the left. And it's true. I mean, even, I mean, Nancy Pelosi used to be like the far left for a lot of people, at least in our mind. We thought Nancy Pelosi was as far left. We really haven't heard of Nancy Pelosi supporting abolishing ICE, not supporting Israel as far as the right to existence, and being fully anti-capitalism. And that's the rising star of the Democratic Party, and it's being echoed because she exists and because she knocked out a prominent Democrat. You are seeing people like Senator Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren move even farther left. ICE plays a critical role in the United States. It does all those things Speaker Ryan said it does. I mean, in fact, it's led to the arrest of multiple MS-13 gang members. These are men who the President of the United States, Donald Trump, described as animals, and the left reacted with, you know, hate speech, essentially. They, they, they said he was, you know, labeling them all incorrectly. They are animals. They've committed rape. They've committed murder. These are people who would like to see other people dead. And in fact, they're growing. According to the Wall Street Journal, they're not just growing, they're trying to organize. And you have the Democrats saying, hey, they, uh, you know, they're not animals. We would hate for someone to say that because mean things hurt, right? But also we want to abolish the organization trying to prevent them from hurting minority communities. And that's what the left is missing. ICE actually does most of its work in minority communities preventing the establishment of gangs. And they're also the, the, the leaders of the anti-sex trafficking movement, which is a whole other topic, but please explore it and see, like, hey, it, 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 if we just have a little bit of agreement, it has to be that you shouldn't be able to buy and sell women for sex exploitation, right? That has to be a, a minimum humanity, like, we're okay, we're still humans. That's a, just a general principle we need to believe across the board. And ICE is part of the leaders of preventing that. And regardless of how you feel about the war on drugs, surely we have to admit that like stuff like crystal meth and cocaine aren't good to have in our communities. These are the organizations that prevent that and protect that. And I know what some of you are thinking, but Joe, this is just blown out of proportions. A couple of lefty loonies, I mean, 
what's really happening? Well, this is where we get to probably one of the most disheartening stories that I've had to share on the American Talk podcast, and it comes from Portland, Oregon, where people were picketing and rioting around an ICE office, and they were calling ICE agents Gestapo and Nazis and white supremacists, which is ironic because, like, the largest racial group in ICE is Hispanic. They have, like, a 35% Hispanic uh, membership. I mean, it, it, it's quite absurd. They have a huge minority group in there. But in Portland, Oregon, things got so bad, the ICE office had to shut down for safety because the riots and stuff were so intense. And so they actually asked the police chief of Portland, Oregon to send officers to help keep these agents safe. And it was denied by the mayor and the police chief. And their statement was, we don't support families being separated at the border. And look, you've heard me say on this podcast, I am against separation of families on the border. But I'm also for ICE having a right to existence and being able to hunt down MS-13 gang members, to be able to hunt down sex traffickers, um, and to continue to do what they're doing. They are not the TSA, okay? They're not some group that, you know, you look at and you're like, have you actually ever caught a terrorist? Um, they have functionalities, and they're behind multiple arrests and, and multiple um, excellent uh, stings and operations, and they help keep the United States safe, as Paul Ryan said. I mean, we've been briefed multiple times about the successes of ICE, and you had the sitting mayor not even willing to protect U.S. citizens at that point. I mean, not just government agents, but U.S. citizens. And in fact, an outside state agency had to come in and arrest the rioters and get them off the land. It makes me wonder, and I hope other Democrats are wondering if they're not on the wrong side. When at the time, you know, your rioters are assaulting government agents and calling for the abolishment of ICE and... and saying that Israel's occupying Palestine, it, I would hope you'd take pause and say, maybe I'm not on the wrong side. Or, or maybe I am on the wrong side. Admittedly, as a Republican, I had one of those when, when we realized that you know, families are being separated. I don't want to see children taken from parents. That's not why I'm an American, but these things were happening under President Obama, so I, I'm kind of wondering why that outcry wasn't heard sooner. And so you have this, and you have this growth on the left that is polarizing. And that's what I want to hit on, is these are real, and how are we going to get to compromise? How are we going to get to the middle of the road if these are the people who we're electing? And it's on both sides. We need to elect people who are willing to sit down and get true immigration reform. You want to stop seeing parents being separated at the border? Well, President Trump actually gave multiple options. But the best would be to pass meaningful immigration reform that would make legal immigration easier. Because I don't want MS-13 gang members in my community, but I do want a strong, permanent immigration population. We are a nation of immigrants, and we're also a nation of laws. And so to have lawful immigration benefits the United States. It makes us stronger. It's our cultural diversity, e pluribus unum, out of many one, that really makes this nation great. 
But at the same time, illegal immigration actually costs the United States billions, if not trillions, and hurts our economy, and it makes communities less safe because of the existence of MS-13. I'm not saying all illegal immigrants want that. There is a vast population, if not a vast majority of the population, uh, that just want a better life. And I would love to see that provided through immigration reform. But eliminating ICE doesn't help immigration. And that's what I don't get from the left. Eliminating ICE only allows bad people to get in. So we're, we're coming to the end of the podcast, but I, I, I guess I kind of want to leave it with where the United States is heading if those are your two competing factions. President Trump, build a wall, you know, they're, they're rapists, all this stuff, and the, the harsh, ignorant rhetoric that you get there. But also the left, which is now championing, you know, four terrible pillars. I don't know how I can get behind the abolishment of capitalism, despite how I feel. How do you support that? Uh, it, it blows my mind. I don't know how you can support the idea that Israel is occupying Palestine. And I also don't know how you can get behind the idea that ICE is bad. You know, uh, it reminds me of a quote by President Ronald Reagan when he was asked why he left the Democratic Party. He's like, I didn't leave the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party left me. And I think there's a growing base in the United States of Democrats who feel that way. And there's a growing base of Republicans who feel that way. And so I'd really encourage both groups like to get together and just say, hey, we're this new party where we listen to the American talk. We're basically just for common sense reform. We're for lower government because we realize that government can be used um, in bad ways. We, you know, like if I'm anti-ICE, I can't also be anti or I can't also be for Medicare for all because I can't say like, hey, ICE is the worst thing ever. It's a government agency. So now let's trust them with my health care. I, I, you know, once again, not to beat a dead horse, I just don't get how those trains connect. If government is bad, then they're just bad. They can be used for their power for bad. I'm also for lower taxes, and, and I just want to have common-sense immigration reform. And I think if Republicans can stick to that notion, they can help bridge this gap, which is happening, which is them losing the midterms. And they might be justified in losing the midterms. They've dropped the ball on a ton of things. But all the polling suggests that people support ICE. In fact, 75% of Americans support ICE. Only 25% would like to see it abolished. So a vast majority of Americans support ICE. 84% of Americans do still believe that illegal immigrants should be arrested. In fact, if they're committing any violent crime, they believe they should be arrested by federal agents. So it's hard for me to get behind the Democratic platform because the Democratic platform is out of touch, like Paul Ryan just said. They're not mainstream. They're radical. They've moved to the left. They're tripping over themselves to the left. Republicans have a chance to move to the middle. And by doing so, they will gain independence. And so a piece of this is definitely on President Trump. He has to fix his rhetoric. Not everything needs to be tweeted, and he has to get in midterm election form. He needs to be shored up. He needs to keep listening to guys like, uh, uh, you know, General Mattis. Mad Dog Mattis. He needs to surround himself with these people. He needs to confirm Judge Brett Kavanaugh. 
And Republicans need to open their rhetoric to be inclusive, not exclusive. Democrats are vastly becoming exclusive. And because of that, I think their blue wave might not reach shore. I think it could definitely be growing. And out in the ocean, it seems big. It seems powerful. And there's a lot of indicators that we could be hit. But just like a hurricane can kind of throw itself off course right there at the end, so this blue wave might also miss because their rhetoric on ICE, their rhetoric on Israel, the rhetoric on capitalism, it, all I have to do is point to this 28-year-old and say, hey, that's the future of the Democratic Party. Do you believe in that? Do you want to be a part of that? And most people say no. So like, just like no country for old men, I, I, I don't know where to belong, but I would hope that we would all search and say, hey, where we're at, though, isn't good enough. We need to have compromise. We need to have two sides coming together and getting an agenda done. That's for the betterment of the American people. So all that to say, go vote. Vote in the primaries. They matter. Don't let people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in office. A, they clearly don't know what they're doing. She struggles with basic economic questions. She struggles with foreign policy. I, I, I just don't trust that she's going to be a good representative based off of what I've heard. So prevent people like that from being elected, but also vote in the general and also make sure that you're getting the person who represents your views in office. There's a lot of stuff going on in the United States. There's a lot of stuff happening in the world. And eventually we just can't afford to get it wrong anymore. I hope you see it the same way. You've been listening to the American Talk Podcast. I've been your host, Joseph Abrams. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you have a wonderful week. Please remember to go rate, subscribe, uh, share this podcast. We saw tremendous growth. In fact, we our listeners tripled week over week. So please keep sharing it. Um, you know, Post it on Facebook. Post it on Instagram. Follow us on Instagram, The American Talk. Uh, do everything you have to do. Go to theamericantalk.com. Uh, a dollar show, it's all we ask. Go donate. Uh, buy a t-shirt buy a bumper sticker. Uh, but most importantly, connect with us. Uh, on there, there is, um, you know, connect. And, and you can drop a line. You can ask questions. You can uh, propose topics. All that stuff really helps keep this conversation going. It helps move this podcast. Uh, and we're so grateful for our listeners. We really do appreciate everything you guys do. Uh, we've had such an outcry of support. Uh, and we just really want to keep everything moving forward. So go help us do that. Um, every little bit helps. Uh, Thank you so much. Remember to keep the conversation going and have a wonderful week.